Hello again, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Kid Kong at the Movies. I am once again your host, the one and only Kid Kong, joined today once again by Cal the Kaiju Guy. What's up, everybody? Cal, how the hell are you today? I'm okay. I'm a little, yeah. I'm a little tired. Yeah. <laughs> but I've been working a lot more crazy hours. I, I, <laughs> I get work. it, dude. I've had so many open to close shifts, and my job's not nearly as physical as yours is now. So yeah, I, uh, my, my audience is much more... Uh, privy to it but uh, for those of you that don't know i work for a utility company and one of the biggest ones in our state and we're pulling a lot of transmission orders and i don't know if anybody knows a lot of stuff about transmission equipment but nothing is light and, and so yeah i've been dealing with that for about the last three weeks and i'm i'm pretty tired but i made time for this and i'm glad <laughs> you did i really am i was looking forward to this episode today we are talking about not just the, the single film, but we're going to talk a little bit about all the films in the franchise. We're going to talk about A Nightmare on Elm Street from 1984. This movie was directed and written by the late, great Wes Craven, who passed in 2015. Wes Craven, of course, apart from the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise, has done The Last House on the Left. He did The Hills Have Eyes. Shocker, The People That Live Under the Stairs. Vampire in Brooklyn. Cursed. And probably his other most well-known franchise, Scream. He's also been a producer... And produce things like Wishmaster and Dracula 2000. Did you ever see Dracula 2000? I honestly don't know. Like, I can't remember. Like, I, it had James Woods in it. Or maybe that was John Carpenter's Vampires. I honestly can't tell. <laughs> I'm not much, I've seen them both and I can't. My brain just won't tell me. But what, what was the other one that you mentioned? John Carpenter's Vampires? No, not that. Uh, that he produced. Oh, Dracula 2000 no, and Wishmaster. Uh, yeah, Wishmaster. Yeah, uh... <laughs> <laughs> not a fan of Wishmaster Wishmaster the original Wishmaster is somewhat of a guilty pleasure of mine it's ridiculous but it's also enjoyable and then yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was produced by Robert Shea and Robert Shea in addition to producing things like Critters uh, Stranded Blink he's also been involved in the distribution and production of things like Lord of the Rings and the Golden Compass because Robert Shea is the founder of New Line Cinema which is, of course, the house that Freddy built. Because up till this point in this movie, we'll talk about it a little bit more, but up till this movie came out, New Line Cinema really only was only a distributor. They weren't really known for producing movies. No, they wouldn't much of nothing. This um, this film really put them on the map. 100%. It's pretty well, you just said it a little while ago, that it's a reason it's called the house that Freddy built because yep. he's and essentially like, what put them on the map. Were it not for the Freddy Krueger movies that came out that put this on the map, we wouldn't have had the 1990 Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles movie either nope. because New Line Cinema took a chance on that as well. It was made for the budget of $1.1 million and pulled in $57 million at the box office. It was released November 9th of 1984. This film, unlike a lot of the movies we just talked about in the Halloween, including the first Halloween movie, was met immediately with rave critical reviews. It is, to this day, considered one of the greatest horror movies ever made. And in 2021, it was selected for preservation in the Library of Congress. This has spawned a massive franchise consisting of six sequels, a TV series where Robert Englund reprised his role as Freddy Krueger, although most of the episodes had nothing to do with Freddy. Uh, there was a crossover with Friday the 13th. There has been a remake, which we will discuss a little bit later. Comics, books, all kinds of things, including other abandoned attempts at remakes and further collaborations that they would have done. There, there's currently talks of a, yes. another reboot. Yes, we will get to that as well. I don't know if I pulled that rug out from under you just now. But. No, no, you, you didn't really pull it out. We're going to get <laughs> okay. to it later. Okay. Uh, this film, of course, used many of the tropes that have been found in low-budget films of the 70s and 80s. 
Halloween specifically was a direct influence on some of the things that Wes Craven did with this movie. Uh, they decided to make this movie. They took a lot of like morality plays. Like a lot of the promiscuous teens are the ones that get killed. The film premise is really a struggle to define the distinction between dreams and reality. And Wes Craven really wanted to try and toy with an audience perception of what reality is in this film. I think they did a pretty good job of that. Uh, we'll talk about the uh, ending of this movie as well, which <laughs> there's there's some stuff about that. Well, it did a fantastic uh, job of let, like not letting the audience know like what is reality and what was a dream. Absolutely. Because I've seen the film. And I rewatched it today in preparation for this episode, and it had been so long since I've seen it. There were parts that I was like, "Oh yeah, that this is a dream scene." Like you know, like it, it throws you for a loop. Absolutely, it does. The cast, of course, the great Robert England played Freddy Krueger. Now, Robert England had been in things like Stay Hungry and St. Ives, and the original, Star I say the original, let me hold up, the 1970s edition of A Star is Born. The original Star is Born came out in the 1930s. There was a remake in the 1950s. There was a remake in the 1970s. And then the most recent remake, remake with Bradley Cooper and Lady Gaga. It's one of the most remade films of all time. Yep. And I actually enjoy the Lady Gaga Bradley Cooper movie. I haven't seen it yet. It's actually really good. It's on HBO Max. I'll, I'll get to it eventually. But... He's also been in The Fifth Floor, Galaxy of Terror, Mangler, Meet the Deedles, Urban Legends. And he has appeared in some capacity in a ton of horror movies and other franchises. He was in Hatchet. He appeared in Stranger Things. Like, he's he's done so much. The, I really don't have time and space to list everything that he's done. He's This film, while he was already well-established for being on the TV series of V, the miniseries of that... This film catapulted this man into pop culture, into pop fiction so much that unlike a lot of other actors who have portrayed various different murderers and serial killers, because we've had different guys portraying Leatherface, we have different guys portraying Jason Voorhees, although Kane Hodder's probably the most well-associated with that. He's personally my favorite. Absolutely. You do not hear the phrase Freddy Krueger without thinking of Robert Englund. No, no. You don't even hear the name Freddy sometimes without thinking about Robert Englund. No. Nancy Thompson was played by Heather Langenkamp. Now, at this point, this was considered to be her theatrical debut. She had filmed scenes for The Outsiders. Those scenes ended up on the cutting room floor. She's also been the Demolitionist, Fugitive Mind. She was in Star Trek Into Darkness, The Sub, Hellraiser Judgment, and a few other TV programs, as well as narrating the Never Sleep Again documentary, which if you have never seen that, be prepared, because it is a four-and-a-half-hour documentary, but it is absolutely I, I turned this thing on at like 11 o'clock at night without knowing how long it was, and I was glued to my screen for four hours straight. Lieutenant Don Thompson, her the, the character that is the father of Nancy Thompson, was played by the great John Saxon, who passed in 2020. This man has appeared in over 200 films over a 60-year period, including films like Portrait in Black, The War Hunt, The Cavern, One Dollar Too Many, Joe Kidd, Black Christmas, The Bees, Probably going to be most recognized from his uh, appearance in Enter the Dragon, as well as in his, his brief appearance as an FBI agent in From Dusk Until Dawn. Um, I know that, just mentioning uh, Enter the Dragon, uh, I don't know how many of your listeners are aware of how big of a Bruce Lee fan I am. But You've I, mentioned I, it before, okay. but we haven't really gone too far yeah, into detail. One, one day maybe we need to talk about a Bruce Lee movie then. We will. But, um... Yeah, I'm a diehard fan of Bruce Lee, and whenever we actually talk about that episode, um, I credit Bruce Lee and his philosophies with uh, one of the reasons as to why I'm still alive. 
<laughs> and I'll, I'll go into more detail with in a future episode with that. But unpopular opinion, even though with all of that said, and I am a massive Bruce Lee fan, Saxon is the highlight of Enter the Dragon. For Absolutely. Me. Like, he's my favorite character on the movie. Like, he, he cracks me up just the way that he talks and the way that he acts and mm -hmm. all that stuff. Like, whenever him and uh, Homeboy was trying to... Uh, you know, earn some money on the side by pretending to throw a fight and all that kind of stuff. It just, it cracks me up and all that. So yeah, I'm a, I'm a big Saxon fan and he was, he was top notch in this movie as always. Character Glenn Lance was played by Johnny Depp. This is one of Johnny Depp's very, very first theatrical appearances ever. I've talked about Johnny Depp before on my Pirates of the Caribbean episode. Just to give you a quick rundown. Of course, he's in Pirates of the Caribbean. Chocolat, he was in... 21 Jump Street. He was in the movie of 21 Jump Street. He briefly appeared in that. He's... He, Cry Baby. Edward Cry Baby. Edward Scissorhands. My favorite Tim Burton movie. Um, he, did, I mean, a lot. We, we could go if, on If you don't know <laughs> what Johnny Depp has been in, even if you don't know one movie of what Johnny Depp has been in, then I don't know how you found my podcast. I really, truly don't. Marge Thompson, who is the, char the character of Nancy's mother, Ooh. was played by Ronnie Blakely. Now, Ronnie Blakely has been in Nashville... Uh, Three Dangerous Ladies, Ronald and Clara, Baltimore Bully, Cinemation, Someone to Love, a lot of older films. And like she's appeared in some television series as of late, but by and large her acting career ended about 15 years ago. The character of Christina, Tina Gray, was played by Amanda Weiss. Now Amanda Weiss was in Force 5 and Fast Times at Ridgemont High, as well as Silverado. She's appeared in Better Off Dead, Monster-in-Law, The Graves, Badland, Big Legend. She, she's been in a few things. The character of Rod Lane was played by Nick Corey. Now, that is actually a stage name. His actual name, I could not pronounce because it is a different spelling of Jesus, and I don't remember what his last name was. If, I'm not going to lie. If you couldn't pronounce it, I'm not even going to attempt it because my dyslexia just will not allow that. He so. was in Gotcha. He was in one of my all-time favorite football movies, Wildcats, which I plan on talking about at some point. He was in Slaves of New York. He was an FBI agent in Predator 2. He was also in Vampire in Brooklyn, Teacher's Pet, The Quickie, Collateral Damage, and in We Were Soldiers. The character of Sergeant Parker was played by Joseph Whip. Now, Joseph Whip has appeared in Escape from Alcatraz, Body Rock, Scream, and The Midas Touch. And the doctor that we see in this film, Dr. King, was played by Charles Fleischer, who you will recognize as Roger Rabbit from Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Now, the concept of this film contained a lot of elements from Wes Craven's life. Like, the base... <laughs> <laughs> Cal made a face. <laughs> the basis was actually inspired by newspaper articles from the 70s about Hmong refugees who, after fleeing war in Laos, Vietnam, Cambodia, and those areas, they suffered intense, disturbing nightmares. Some of them even dying in their sleep and was considered a sudden, unexplained death syndrome, also known as SUDS, not to be confused with SIDS, which is Sudden Infant Death Syndrome. There's really no necessary explanation for when this kind of thing happens. Uh, this and the song Dreamweaver itself gave him the idea with the synthesizer music for an artistic setting and to come up with really the concept of what would go on right there. Now, some sources have attributed this to a student film that was made by Wes Craven's students in 1968 because at one point he was a professor. This has never been proven. This is one of those disputed ones, you know? Well, there was also the... Well, I, I don't know if you were going to 
talk about this later on. Uh, one of the inspirations for Freddy. Yes, I am. Well, okay. Yeah, I got, I got, yeah, I got yeah, notes yeah. on. That. Okay, okay. I didn't okay. know if you had something to add, like as, as far as that goes. I mean, I've got crap off the top of my head, but I, I don't have a notebook. Freddy, <laughs> at least Freddy's appearance, like the way he would walk and the way he moved, was actually based on something that happened to Wes when he was a child. He was in his house, and there was a night where this elderly man was walking by on the street outside, who suddenly stopped and stared at Wes Craven. It scared the crap out of him. A disfigured elder, yes. elderly man, by the it way. It absolutely terrified him. Uh, now, the name Fred Krueger, Wes Craven was actually bullied by a boy named Fred Krueger in school. The red and green idea was used because, like, for his sweater, because those are the two clashes that most psychological studies agree clash the most in the human eye. That, that is, uh, his sweater is a subject of the Mandela effect because there it's an ungodly amount of people that vividly remember, like I've, I've spoke with them. They're like, well, I've seen certain cuts of the movie where his sweater is uh, red and black. No. Like, no, it has never been red and black. It was red and that green. Is, There's just darker the sequences. Man, it is the Mandela effect. You have never seen a version where his sweater was red and black. It the is closest and green. thing I can think of to that would be in Wes Craven's New Nightmare. Maybe, but, you know, as as Chris said, a vast majority, of, a lot of Freddy's scenes take place in a very, like, poorly lit room or just in a dark alleyway or something. So, yeah, the lighting is probably playing tricks on you, but his sweater has always been red and green. Now, this next thing has been debated amongst both fans and critics for many years. Everything that I have found has all pointed the same direction, that initially Freddy was indeed intended on being a child molester. Yeah. Um, However, Wes Craven decided to shift this to a child killer instead, because at the time he was writing this film, there was a very, 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 very well-publicized spat of molestations happening in the California, and especially in the area in California that he lived and he was talked to about it and was told that you might not want to do this because it may seem like you're trying to exploit or take advantage of this. And for those of you that might think, oh, maybe that's not that big of a deal. It can be that big oh, of a absolutely. deal. Oh, absolutely. Because just looking at me personally, it's something that like I view as just straight-up exploitation. Was just a few short years after 9-11, a movie was made about 9-11 starring Nicolas Cage. Yeah, I mean, and I was—I've never seen the film. I've never either. seen Don't a single it. bit of footage of the film because the moment it came out, or I saw advertisements for it, I was like, "Are you, are you kidding me right now? Like, yeah, you, like you people are trying to capitalize on this by making a movie? Like, we don't need a movie. I mean, it, it just all, happened like three years ago. It only We're took aware about ten years to make a movie about the AIDS pandemic with Philadelphia. So this is not exactly new. It's but, not because Hamburger Hill, which is a very well-known Vietnam film, it was made just a few years after the Vietnam War had ended. So I mean, like, but, I mean, it, it there happens, is something to be said for I still trying, draw the line. Oh, I agree. <laughs> there is something to be said for trying to use media as a way of getting, you know general public to move on from things or to try and help them heal. But there's also such a thing as tax because when this movie came out, not, not none of the Friday 13, let me make that distinction. When this nine 11 movie came out, there were still people who were actively dealing with the immediate fallout of the event. This would be like, I'm going to release a movie about hurricane Katrina in 2007. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> and it's just, it's just not a good idea. Anyway, moving right along. One of the ideas that Wes Craven had with Freddy Krueger, because in a lot of movies, especially horror movies that we'd seen, the parents were the good guys. The older people were the good guys. 
He wanted Freddie to be like a dark mirror and stand for the worst of parenting, the worst of adults when it comes to children. He's a dirty old man who wants to help people die and wants to inflict not just psychological but physical harm on these kids rather than help them like an adult or a parent is supposed to do. So... He uh, also chose not to use a real mask in this movie. Very, very early on, they experimented with the idea of giving him a mask. Two of the reasons Wes Craven decided not to do this is, number one, he wanted to avoid any unnecessary comparisons to Halloween, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, or Friday the 13th. Because he's like, let's, let's kind of keep this away from this kind of thing. He decided to settle on him being burned and scarred in large part because of that elderly man that scared the crap out of him as a child. Because... If you see, if you've ever seen burn victims, there. First of all, this is not meant to be derogatory towards any burn victim anywhere because they are absolutely people and deserve to be treated with respect. Especially when you are a child or a teenager, it can be quite jarring to see some of the damage some people suffer from burns, explosives, things like that. Well, not just as a child or, or a teenager, but even adults that, that that have never actually seen something like that before. Yeah. Like, they don't know how to react to it. No, they don't. And sometimes, a lot of the time, if you don't know how to react to something, you either react with fear or anger. Yeah. I mean, you know, it, it's it's human nature to have your first reaction generally stays in yes. your brain. I mean, the, the old saying is true that, you know, first impressions last. Yeah, they absolutely and do. And whenever you see something like that for the first time, like, no matter what your age, it could jar you. Yeah, it could. One of the other things that he was big on was for the weapon of choice for this serial killer. He did not want to do just a basic knife because he felt that a basic knife had been done to death. Every single serial killer you'd seen before this point, and a lot of them after this point, had knives. Like, yeah, the Chucky doll would strangle people and preferred to do that, but he still used knives. The idea was initially to give him a sickle or a large scythe-like weapon. This went back and forth between this and the idea of a bladed glove. And they actually came up with five different designs of the bladed glove, including just basic razor blades, steak knives, carving knives, fillet knives, all these different things. And they ended up back and forth, back and forth with this. Two weeks before production was slated to begin, they decided on to go ahead with the glove with the curved slice-like blades. In effect, almost like scythe blades on the fingers, as it were. And they had three different models of this. They had one that was purely for show. They had one that was for needed if he needed to cut, like, running against metal. So Because like, in that scene where he stretches his arms out and he's running them against the wall and they're causing sparks, those were genuine blades causing sparks on that metal. The, the woman that played Tina, uh, Amanda Weiss, said it was one of the worst sounds she's ever heard in her life to hear that live. And the third model they came up with is, was a dummy model with just, like, plastic ones whenever he'd need to immediately interact with people right around him. Or usually probably, like, whenever he was wrestling with them, yes. like, the few times he would tackle um, Nancy and yeah. they're rolling around and all that. Can't very well have a real bladed glove on your hand while no, that's happening. So, no, absolutely not. <laughs> After finishing some work on Swamp Thing, Craven began writing this in 1981. Multiple studios, just about every studio he brought this to, not only turned it down, but refused to make it. They, the only, <laughs> the only one that showed any kind of interest initially was Disney. What? Hold on. <laughs> Disney showed interest, but asked that if they were to finance and produce this movie, they wanted him to tone down the subject matter for children and preteens to be able to view this with their parents. Craven politely declined. 
Can you imagine? The mouse tried to get Freddy The Krueger. mouse tried to get Freddy Krueger. We talk about the, the damage that has come out of Disney getting Marvel or getting Star Wars or acquiring uh, 20th Century Fox. They tried to take Freddy Krueger. Can you imagine a commercial where you hear Goofy singing one, two, Freddy's coming for you? Gorsh? Absolutely not. That's... No, because at the end of the day, if Disney got their hands on it, he would be more like the, um, oh, I can't think of his name, the bad guy from Princess and the Frog. Oh, like, crap. Like, kind of creepy, kind of, you Dr. know. Dr. Facilier. Yeah, like, kind of creepy, kind of, you know, he's a bad guy. Like, eh, he might, might spook some people here and there, but at the end of the day, it's still a family cartoon. Dude, a, yeah. That's the route that they would have taken our boy Freddy. I'm yeah. glad that didn't happen. Universal turned it down. Paramount was initially interested but found that the similarities to Dreamscape, which they had just finished, were a little too strong and asked him to change it to, instead of them being asleep, have it be a drug-related thing. He didn't want to do that. Uh, to the point that the universal turndown was so demoralizing to him that he determined that it was going to help him. He had it framed and put up in his office, and it remained there until the day that he died. In case any of you were wondering... That's about one of the best fuck you moments that anybody could Like, oh, okay, you, you, okay, I see how it's going to be. All right. I don't have nearly as many children. For those of you wondering at home, I don't have nearly as many listeners that are under the age of like 14. So I don't worry so much about my language. I do try and watch a little bit of it here and there simply because I don't want this to be a blue collar show. But like, for example, Kaiju Carnage, he's got children as young as eight that listen to his show, if not younger. I, th- I think the youngest is eight, and um, I'm, I'm very big on receiving messages from my listeners. Mm-hmm. And so anytime I've guessed it on his show, I have done my absolute best to watch all of my languages. Yeah, but, but I, it, I still slip every now and again. But, but believe it or not, to 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 your listeners that aren't aware of it, um, whenever I'm not recording, I cuss like a sailor. He absolutely does, like and so I'm, do I. <laughs> like I'm I'm very much toned down. Anytime you have ever heard me, like sometimes every other word that comes out of my mel- mouth is. F this and GD that and all that kind of stuff. See you next Tuesday as well. (laughs) He's got a few of them. Yeah, so. But yeah, uh, he framed the rejection letter on the wall in his office and it remained there until the day that he died. You can actually see it in Wes Craven's New Nightmare when uh, Heather Langenkamp, who plays a fictionalized version of herself, goes to visit him. And Universal has been crying themselves to sleep ever since. Oh, they have to have regretted (laughs) this. They have to have regretted this. New Line Cinema, which again, at this point was only a distributor, did agree to finance. During the filming, it did initially lose its distribution deal for two weeks. So for two weeks, even while filming still, cast, crew, and director were not paid for two weeks. But they were damn determined to get this thing done. So they're like, no, no, we have faith. It'll happen. We'll go ahead and do it. Due to a lack of finances to cover the whole cost for production on this, they chose to turn to external sources. Two investors in England gave 40 and 30% respectively in order to finance a producer from the Texas Chainsaw Massacre gave a final 10%, and then Media Home Entertainment gave 20% as well. One of the original English investors backed out after about a month and a half. Media Entertainment, uh, Media Home Entertainment ended up footing up that other 40% on there. During the course of making this film, nearly every original investor dropped out to the point that what ended up financing the majority of this film is some rich Romanian guy who put up about 80% of the finance for it because his girlfriend was a pretty girl who was trying to get into movies. So the deal was, 
She gets to be in some movies that New Line Cinema is making. <laughs> that's so, uh, that's uh, one of your, your first cases of crowd uh, crowdfunding. People. Absolutely. <laughs> now, when it comes time to casting, this one it was interesting to cast because a lot of actors, a lot of actors have come out over the last 25, 30 years and claimed that they auditioned for this movie. Some of them may very well have. The casting director, who is still alive, has been asked about these all and has either confirmed them, said, I do not remember this, or outright stated that did not happen. David Warner was the initial choice for Freddy Krueger, to the point that he had makeup tests and began early pre-production. For those of y'all who don't know, I know you know who David Warner is. For those of you who do not know who David Warner is, he played the doctor on Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 2, uh, Seeker of the Ooze, that worked with TGRI. He was also the bodyguard-type manservant character that was in Titanic. Do you have any others that you can add on for that? Um, he actually played in another Titanic film. <laughs> no kidding. Uh, yeah, like he's, he's been in two well, this wasn't Titanic enough, films. huh? No, it wasn't enough. Um, you're, ta- you're talking about like James Cameron's best friend, right? Yeah, David yeah, Warren. Yeah. yeah, so uh, yeah, very, very good friends with, uh, with James Cameron. He only passed this year, if he's I remember correctly. like... Nothing's really coming to the top of my head, but trust me, like, and I hate to say this because he's such a, a great actor, but he's one of those that us, our little group of people call a that guy. Yes. Like you see him, you may not recognize his name. You may not be like, be able to pinpoint other movies that you've seen him in, but, but you, the see, moment you see you him, see a picture of him. You're like, oh, oh that, that guy. guy. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. He ended up having to drop out of it due to scheduling conflicts. Conflicts. Conflict. Conflict. <laughs> Third time's charm. Another actor that was considered for the role was a struggling stuntman who was considered because he's also a burn victim. And they thought that having someone who was a burn victim, they could work with the prosthetics on that. Kane Hodder. He was initially one of the guys who was considered for Freddy Krueger. Ultimately, it did not happen because they felt that he was a little too muscular for the role. Kane's a big dude. He for is. For those of you that don't know. He, he is a very <laughs> large man. Now, originally, along those lines, not somebody quite that big, but Wes Craven was originally wanting a bigger, physically larger actor to play the role. Because he realized that, you know, someone sees like Freddy Krueger, uh, Jason Voorhees, he's a big guy. You know, Michael Myers is a big guy. Leatherface was a big guy, you know, like relatively speaking, big guy. I, I saw the look on your face. I know Michael's not the biggest in the world, but relatively bigger guy. In the early films, he wasn't, but l- later on, they they did uh, up him in stature. Yeah. So, but um, Robert Englund had an audition for that, and on his way to the audition, he was actually speaking to his agent, and his agent said, "Take a different tack with this. Instead of going in there and trying to be over the top about this." Do you have any of your makeup from your set? Because he was in between scheduling V and the V miniseries. And he said, I've got some of my car. He said, put some black on your eyes. Slick your hair back. Go in there acting kind of weaselly. Acting kind of shifty. Because the idea is, and you can look at this throughout different cases that have been caught in the media. People who are child molesters. People who do this kinds of shit. They're not big, muscular. They almost all are scrawny, weaselly, snivelly little people. You know what I mean? Everyone knows that type whenever they look and they just see this. I, I have no other way to put it in words other than just be like this creepy guy. And right now, everybody that's listening to this, 
somebody, whether you know their name or not, someone you have seen just entered your mind. Like, Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I got a feeling about that guy or something like that. Yeah. Pretty yep. much. And, and Robert Englund has spoken in interviews since, and he's like, I wish I had thought of it myself. I wish I could take credit for it for myself, but it's true. And it made a very big point when I made my audition because I was willing to take my voice and the mannerisms that I was doing. I was willing to go into darker places for this audition that a lot of people weren't. And Wes, after casting me, even told me that you've opened my eyes a little bit. Size does not equate to fear. Countenance, attitude, physical, like the way you are is what adds to fear. Yeah, there's been many a little uh, rat terrier that's made me take a step or two back. Like There's one in that living room right there that gets on my damn nerves and does it too. The, the glorious thing about this for Robert Englund was that the filming schedule fit perfectly with his schedule for filming both the miniseries and the film for V. So he basically didn't go without a paycheck for six months straight. Every single week he was getting paid. Which is outstanding. When it came time to cast Nancy, Wes Craven specifically wanted somebody that did not radiate I'm Hollywood for the role. He didn't want someone that was going to be too drop-dead gorgeous, but he also didn't want somebody that looked too much like a teenager. He found a, a pretty fair maiden. He did. Like if, <laughs> you know, yeah. He liked Langenkamp because while she had been in some commercials and a TV film, she hadn't done a whole lot of bigger production. And she had actually taken time off of school to do more of acting. Now, Nancy was an open audition. Not only was Nancy an open audition, but all the people that auditioned for Nancy also had to audition for the part of Tina. Because they're like, we're not going to get a whole lot of time for casting on this, so we're going to knock out as many of these as we can. She won out over 200 others that had shown up. Now, she was also known to this casting director because she had auditioned before her several times and had lost multiple times to the exact same actress. Her name has escaped me at this exact moment, but this woman also auditioned for Nancy and got beat out by Heather Langenkamp for the role. So there's some catharsis there, especially considering what Friday uh, Nightmare on Elm Street has done going forward since then. <laughs> gotcha, bitch. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Now, remember how I said a few minutes ago that various people have stated that they auditioned or were considered for the role. Courtney Cox, Demi Moore, Tracy Gold, and Jennifer Grey all were either rumored or claimed to have auditioned for the role. And all four were shot down by the cast director saying, I never saw any of them. If they were considered at all, it was higher up than I was, and it never got to the point where they were going to audition. Probably for the best. I can't imagine Courtney Cox playing this role. Monica? No. No. Jennifer Grey? Nobody puts baby in the corner, but they kill her in her dreams, I guess. I don't know. Shit. Uh, again, like I said, no separate auditions were done for the role of Tina. All the women had to audition for that role as well. Wes Craven really liked Heather Langenkamp and Amanda Weiss as a duo and had them read with the male auditioners that participated for the boy roles because they felt that this would be the best way to get an idea of who's going to work best with who. And that's not a terrible idea, and a lot of current studios would do well to do that. Here's the fun one. The character of Glenn that was played by Johnny Depp. Depp was an unknown actor at this point. In fact, he had moved to Hollywood to be a musician, not an actor. It's so much so. Um, well, ha! Joke's on them. He's a musician now. Yeah. But well, um, it, his roommate when he moved to Hollywood was Nicolas Cage. Yeah. Nicolas Cage is the one who got him to consider acting. But, um, yeah, th this was so early in his career that if you're watching the film and the opening credits are coming across the screen, it literally says, introducing Johnny Depp. Mm -hmm. Like, that. that's how early it was for him. But here's the fun thing about it. 
He did not go to this audition to audition. He went with one of his roommates to keep him company while he went. You know what that roommate was? Jackie Earl Haley. Jackie Earl Haley, for those of you that don't immediately know, portrayed Freddy Krueger in the remake. That's some full circle shit that you just don't come across. Yeah. <laughs> and honestly, if he'd have had a better script and had a better movie, Jackie Earl Haley would have been fine as Freddy Krueger. And if he had some better makeup. That too. That too. Now, initially, Glenn was written to be this big, blonde, muscular kid, like a football player, kind of like the... You know, just like Johnny Depp. Well, <laughs> specifically in mind, what Wes Craven has later described is that how he would have looked was the main bully from Revenge of the Nerds. That was his idea. That would not have fit with this movie at all. At all. However, what ended up winning out was the fact that Wes Craven's daughters were looking at different headshots and thought Johnny Depp was cute, and they said, you should pick him. Johnny Depp was still not the first choice. First choice was Charlie Sheen. Charlie Sheen was even offered the role, but he wanted $2,000 a week for that role. He denies this. Of course, the man slept with people for 15 years while hiding the fact that he had AIDS. I I was about to say. So take that as you will. Charlie Sheen is not exactly the best... um authority to uh <laughs> on his own to, life to, yeah to uh to tell the truth or anything like that so nine times out of ten and charlie sheen's like i didn't do that yeah you did so I'm, I'm inclined to think that this is true now these are the auditions that were alleged unconfirmed or possible that were for the character of glenn john cusack i can see that happening yeah brad pitt Kiefer sutherland Nicolas Cage, which, considering two of his roommates showed up at that audition, there is some possible water there. And C. Thomas Howell. Uh, the other characters that were cast were just cast off of their auditions that they'd done. Um, the character, that, uh, the actor that played Nick was actually a struggling actor that was also dealing with a heroin addiction at the time. And we'll talk about that in a moment because there's some actually really interesting thing there. They began filming June 11th of 1984. It lasted for about 32 days. The high school that they used, if it ever looked familiar to you, is the same high school they used in Greece, Pretty in Pink, and 16 Candles. The neighborhood that they used for Elm Street was North Genesee Avenue. The boiler room was filmed in the Lincoln Heights Jail, which has actually been closed since 1965. The exterior police station shots were all a library. The Rod's funeral, when they did Rod's funeral, that was done at Evergreen Cemetery. And the International Institute for Study for Sleep Disorders, the exterior shots you see there, is the American Jewish industry. I do what you got to do. Hey, <laughs> one of the things that they, happened during filming, they used over 500 gallons of fake blood in this movie. Hold on, because I see you nodding. None of it was used in the blood geyser. Oh, wow. Not a single bit. That room is actually really interesting because that is the same room that Tina dies in that they filmed that in. Mm-hmm. The room was built in such a way that it could rotate around like this. When they did that scene, Wes Craven and a cameraman were mounted on fixed seats while the room revolved around them. They inverted the set so that it would look upside down but was filmed right side up. And then they poured water with red food coloring through that. The reason they did that was because they did initially do a test run with some fake blood. And it did not look right. They said that it didn't. It wasn't vibrant enough when it was on camera, and it didn't fall the way they wanted it 
for that particular scene. So like, we'll save the fake blood for something else and we'll go with this. They also filmed a point where uh, a different so- show of that where the blood first starts going up and then you just see a skeleton fly up and hit the ceiling. And that's supposed to be Glenn's skeleton. That was done for TV edits because at this point in time, Halloween had started showing on NBC and they realized we need to edit these things so they can show them on television. Uh, funny story that happened with the uh, blood geyser. The rotation malfunctioned at one point and spun the room so fast that the red water went out through the window and splashed Heather Langenkamp, Johnny uh, Johnny Depp's stunt double, Wes Craven, and a poor little woman from catering that was just bringing somebody a sandwich. She got a face full of it. A lot more boiler room scenes for Freddy Krueger were shot as well. However, those they ended up going with unused. They're like, we feel like if we do this too much with them, we make them a little too humanized and we don't want to do that. We we want there to be some still some like mystery about the man. And a lot of the scenes that were filmed were of Freddy before he would have died. So it's probably for the best they didn't do that for the ambiance and atmosphere of the film. One of the other really cool things, the bathtub that Heather Langenkamp is laying in. That was actually a quote-unquote bottomless bathtub. They used that in such a way that they'd be able to pull her down into the water and actually and, and something went wrong when doing that and then stunt double four Nancy nearly drowned during that scene. You, you, you can't screw with water. You just, you can't. There, there's been many an actor that has nearly drowned mm-hmm. while making movie of uh, Viggo Mortensen. Yeah. Uh, during Lord of the Rings. <laughs> yep. Of course, that didn't help matters that Peter Jackson had him wearing all that gear that he went into the water with. But no, no, we're, we're talking about the scene from the two towers. Yeah. By the way, whenever he's floating down the river and um, water was a little stronger than thought it was going to be. At one, at one point, he uh, submerged and he did not pop back up, and everyone was like, "Uh, go get him! Go get him! Go get him!" <laughs> What's funny about that is Stuart Townsend, who was originally going to be Aragorn and was replaced right before filming began has gone on record as saying when he found that out, he's like, huh, you should have had someone younger in the role that could swim a little better. Nah, Viggo Mortensen is Aragorn. I I like Stuart Townsend. He's no Aragorn. He's too damn young. Uh, The scene where you see the the staircase melting, you know how they did that? Pancake mix. Mm -hmm. Pancake mix and orange juice because it caused it to have like this little weird, disgusting, drippy feel. One other thing. I mentioned earlier the actor that played... uh, the actor played Rod was a heroin addict at the time. He was extremely depressed, and in between takes on one scene, he shot up a lot. The scene that he filmed while high like that is the scene where he's in the jail cell and Tina's dead body is walking towards him and going through the bars. Everybody was blown away because he was sweating, he was crying, he was shaking. They're like, this is fantastic acting. Dude was entirely screwed up on heroin at the time. He said it's both one of his proudest moments for what it looks like on film, but also one of his deepest shames for how it looked at the end. And he, had, he attempted suicide in 2015, but he's he's on better terms now. There is a point in time where you can see the movie Evil Dead being played on a television in this film. Did you notice that? Mm-mm. That was done directly as a nod to the fact that there is a Hills Have Eyes poster in the first Evil Dead oh, film. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. That's right. Because they, they go back and forth in a lot of their films, yeah. like doing, like, like Freddy's yeah. glove appears. And, yeah. Uh, and yeah, speaking yeah, yeah. of Freddy's glove, Kane Hodder would eventually play Freddy, in a sense. That was his hand with the glove with the glove on it. They reached up and dragged Jason's mask under in Jason Goes to Hell. Hey, it counts. It was a cameo. 
Yep. <laughs> Although they did, they used archival footage of Robert Englund's laugh for that. Oh, yeah. Now, here's where it gets interesting. The ending, very famous ending, the way it goes, was not originally supposed to be that way. Originally, the studio wanted it to have a happy ending. Mm-hmm. They wanted her to wake up from this as just one long extended nightmare. She'd go outside. Hence the title. <laughs> a nightmare on Elm Street. Exactly. She would have gone outside. Her friends would have been alive and well in the car. She would have gotten in. And as they were driving away, she would have looked around like, is this real or did this not, did this happen? Because it was a Basically they, leaving it open for the audience. Exactly. Like, uh, you know, like what's going on here? What ended up changing that was initial reactions from the cast and crew caused New Line Cinema to do a total 180. They demanded a twist ending. The ending they wanted was this for this to be a dream within a dream within a dream. Freddie would have been driving the car, would have turned around and been like, buckle up, and then drove off. I'm glad they didn't go with that Wes one. Wes Craven hated that so much and blatantly said, if that is the ending you want, I will burn this footage, scrap it, and I will pay everybody out of my own pocket. I don't care if it bankrupts me. A happy ending with a twist ending and the twist endings were both filmed. The reason that they were done this way is because, believe it or not, Wes Craven never wanted a franchise out of this. That happens a lot with a, a lot of movies. They're they're made to be just one-off yeah. standalone films and then the studio gets dollar signs in their eyes. Exactly. Give us another so one! So one of the ideas they had for the ending was that it would have been a very, very foggy morning. The, the vehicle would have been partially obscured. You wouldn't really be able to see the kids there and then when she'd get in, then, just like in the actual movie, the way the hood would come up. The, the idea was always in Wes Craven's mind that if this is how you're going to do it, the car is going to be Freddy. That was, my, that was his decision. Because it would fit in tune with some of the things that Freddy had done. And it would ultimately fit in with some of the things that Freddy would do. The part where Nancy's mother, or should I say a blow-up doll dressed like Nancy's mother, getting ripped through the window like that. That looks so terrible. The cast and crew, <laughs> like the, the crew specifically, when talking about this, about complaining about the twist ending, progressively getting louder and laughing harder and harder about it. One of them suggested, why don't we have Freddy just yank her through this tiny window? They laughed at it and liked it so much, that's what ended up in the film. They did use the fog machines, but because there was so much of a breeze that morning, there's almost no fog visible. They did have to do some minor censorship. About 13 seconds of the film ended up getting cut in order for it to achieve an R rating. Otherwise, they said this will be NC-17. To that point, Wes was like, you've already cut this. Cut 13 seconds. That's fine. Just go ahead and do it. It wrapped filming in July, and they rushed it to make a November release. Now, one of the ideas behind this movie, and one of the reasons why it probably resonates so well, even so many years after it, is the very relatable themes that come from this movie themes of trauma specifically uh sexuality you know the sins of the parents being revisited upon the children every single adult for example in this film is damaged in some way they're either alcoholics they're abusive they have their own issues heather langenkamp has been quoted as saying nightmare on elm street for as much as i look at it as a feminist movie a feminist power movie really is a youth power movie because these kids are like, the adults and parents are not going to help us. We need to do this. It's a horror version of The Breakfast Club. That's a very good way to look at it. 
and it holds up tremendously well today. Like, yes, there are some effects that are a little dated, like when his arms stretch out to reach both sides of the yeah. wall. That is probably the worst effect in the film. But everything else, when Rod gets uh, ch- uh, strangled in his jail cell, Tina's death, when Freddy kind of comes through the see- the wall that, a little ways. To me, that's probably my favorite practical effect that yep. they do in the film because it's just like, yeah, there he is. He's right there. You know, you know like, in a lot of ways, Wes Craven learned from the extremely over the top done sexual violence in I Spit on Your Grave to tone it down and just imply it with this one. Like Nancy falling asleep in the tub. You see Freddie's hand rising between her legs. Like it's just the idea of kind of like it makes you squirm. It makes you a little uncomfortable, but he's not going so far as to outright state this is what he's doing. Yeah. You know what I mean? You know, it's just, it's outstanding, outstandingly done. And again, everybody's got trauma. Every single person walking the face of this earth over a specific age has some sort of trauma and has a movie that can relate to it. Nightmare can relate to a lot of people's because there's a lot of things that happen. It was released November 9th in 1984. It's opening weekend. It pulled in 1.27 million, 25 million total in the U.S. and Canada during its box office run and 57 million worldwide. It got an almost universal positive reviews. I'm not going to say it got Oscar attention kind of reviews, but it got very positive reviews pretty much worldwide on this. To the point that Freddy is such a, and this is a weird thing to say, is such a beloved serial killer character that he ranked number 40 on the AFI 100 Heroes, 100 Villains list. I believe the only villains of like horror movies like this that passed him up are Jason Voorhees, and Hannibal Lecter. And Hannibal is not quite the same kind of villain, but I understand that. Again, this spawned a massive franchise. But before we delve into that, let's talk a little bit about the first movie. How old were you the first time you saw it? Oh, God, I can't remember. Uh, I mean, teenager. Okay, so like I that. was five the first time I saw this movie. <laughs> and uh, I had, I already had problems with nightmares. What helped me not be that bad about it is my older brother was seven, and he had already seen it. We watched it, and I was afraid to go to sleep. My older brother, we had bunk beds at the time, because at the time we were having to share a very small room together, pulled himself up so he could look at me, and he's like, are you scared of Freddy? And I nodded my head, yes. And he said, don't be. I had a dream the other night that Freddy was trying to kill me, and I went to the bathroom. I walked into our bathroom, and like our shower curtain is a bunch of skin that looks like Freddy's face. Our toilet was Freddy's head. Freddy's face is in the mirrors, and... My little five-year-old brain is thinking, how is this supposed to help me? Like, Hold on. Fred is coming for you. Hold on. Like, what, you... <laughs> what helped me was my brother saying that Freddie said something to him like, I'm coming for you. And my brother just laughed and peed in his mouth because he was the toilet. Completely killed any fear I had of Freddy Krueger at that point. When you've got when a when a seven-year-old pisses down your throat, you're not that scary. Leave it to uh leave it to the the big brother to uh <laughs> He, 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 squash, wasn't always, he didn't squash. always stick up for me, but sometimes <laughs> he came in clutch on that. And actually, after seeing this movie, the very next Friday or Nightmare on Elm Street movie that I saw was actually Wes Craven's New Nightmare. I did not see two through any of the others, apart from like Freddy versus Jason. I didn't see any of the others until like 2002 or 2003. I'm not going to lie. Um, I'm not a big fan of the overall franchise. I'm not either. And the reason I say that well, I mean, it's it, it kind of makes doesn't make a whole lot of sense for me to say that because there's a huge chunk of the movies I've never seen. 
Yeah. And I have no desire we to We were talking about that just a minute ago before we started recording. Because, like, I like the original film. Like, I, I really do. New Nightmare, I've seen bits and pieces of here and there. The remake from uh, 2010, I watched it, thought it was trash. Oh, oh we'll talk about and it. And I've right. seen bits and pieces of multiple others because my brother is a big fan of the franchise. And he he's seen them all. He likes them all. Like, of, of the horror franchises, like... Me to Halloween, him to Friday the 13th. Ian to Phantasm. But he's also a massive fan of the Nightmare franchise. And so it's one of those deals kind of like with Simpsons. and Kind of like with Monk. I'm not a fan of him, but because he is. You've seen I've, more of it than I've you I've seen cared. chunks of it, and I've always just kind of been like, why do people like this so much? Yeah. But, you know, but I do, I do like the I first think movie. one of the problems is, and we'll talk about that with more of the rest of the sequels in a moment, but I think one of the real problems is I think they leaned way too hard into comedy with the comedy horror aspect in the movies going forward. Yeah, I mean, I'm not... Like when it, if when Freddy comes out of the TV and goes, welcome to prime time, bitch, yeah. and grabs a woman and throws her face first into the TV to kill her. I'm like, I know what you guys are trying to do with this, but the moment you make the kids realize we're in our dreams so we can have superpowers in our dreams, you lose all... Too much of the horror aspect of it, and it becomes more of a black comedy more than anything else. Well, uh, and I, I need to say there is another Freddy film that I like because it is canon to both franchise franchises. I do like Freddy versus Jason. Yes. Oh, we are going to discuss <laughs> Freddy versus Jason. We are. But um, th- look, this spawned a massive franchise. It has so many. It had so many sequels. It had reimaginings. It had a remake. It had comic books, books. It spawned some ripoffs, things like that. Like a possible remake was initially announced in 2015. What has slowed this down from continuing from where that point is the success of the conjuring universe films, because those movies have been so successful. It has virtually delayed all slasher films other than what we just got with Halloween going forward for new line cinema, for new line cinema. But, the rights have very recently reverted back to the West Craven estate. And so that's why they're talking about potentially doing a reboot. And Robert England um, was talked about as, I'm trying to remember what year it was. It wasn't too long ago. Like I think it's 2018. See, so yeah, something like that. He they, they were already like, you know, we want you back. <laughs> if they're going to do one more with him, let them do one with And even Heather Langenkamp with the... <laughs> With the quote-unquote success of the new Halloween movies. <laughs> yeah. The new Halloween movie. We, says, we don't talk about kills or ends. She said, and I agree with her on this, the first Halloween remake in 2018, the first sequel they did right there, that shows that there is an audience for these older films that would like some sense of closure. She's like, why not let us have one more thing where Nancy, maybe she's protecting a grandchild. Maybe she's protecting a great niece. She's protecting some. And I think she actually hit the nail on the head when she's like, I don't think Nancy would have had children. I think she would have been so traumatized by this that she wouldn't want to do this. She would not want to pass this kind of thing on. Oh, no. Oh, no. (laughs) And then let it be like something's coming after someone she cares about. And there's kind of hints about it being Freddy. And she comes back to deal with it. She said... Maybe they could even make this in a two-part movie and properly do the suspense to build it up because she trusts the Craven Estate to do that. If they were to pull that off, I think it would do really well. I really do. I think it would. Like, just ignore all other ones, make it be like a direct sequel to the original film, just yes. like the 2018 Halloween film and all that. But then leave it alone. 
Yes. Now don't, you see, don't do like the new Halloween trilogy. No, and, and, he, and Heather Langenkamp yeah, yeah, yeah. has come back as Nancy. Oh yeah. In Friday the in uh, Nightmare on Elm Street three. But let's start talking about the sequels here. All right, let's get down to it. So in the interest of disclosure on this, as you have stated that there are movies in the franchise that you just haven't seen, you've seen bits and pieces. What we're going to do with this part is because I have seen all of them and real quick to touch on what we said before, like I'm not the biggest fan of the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise. I'm really not. But as someone who both as a child and as an adult has had problems with nightmares and night terrors and now has a child with nightmares about very specific things repeatedly coming after them. These films have always resonated with me a little bit more. Like, that's why anytime a new one's coming out, I kind of try and pay a little bit of attention to it. But I just wanted to add that in. Now, I will say we're really not going to talk about the TV series because outside of his appearances at the beginnings of the episodes, they're in no way, shape, or form really connected to A Nightmare on Elm Street. This was done pretty much just to capitalize on Freddy Krueger. So, have you ever seen or seen the entirety of A Nightmare on Elm Street 2, Freddy's Revenge? Nope. This is the gay one. Have you heard about that? Nope. There is... <laughs> so, Wes Craven has said before, there might be some gay subtext in A Nightmare on Elm Street Part 2. There ain't no subtext about it. This boy is 100% gay. And real quick, I want to make this abundantly clear. This is in no way, shape, or form is bashing anybody that is a member of the LGBTQ umbrella. Like... The, the, in no way, shape, or form. I, I promise you that. Like, you live your life. We are not judgmental. Nope. Like for like allies to the core. Not like there's anything wrong with that. Yeah. There's, there is <laughs> nothing wrong with that. We're, we're big Seinfeld fans, yes, guys. It's, it's <laughs> astonishing how many things can still have Seinfeld references 20 years later. And it's also astonishing how many people that you would, whenever we make these references, look at us like... What are you talking about? Like the Dinky Donuts yeah, thing. And I'm like, you uncultured <laughs> swine. We were like, at Buffalo <laughs> Wild Wings one night watching the fights. And there's an episode. I know this is off traffic. I don't care. It's funny. There was an episode of Seinfeld where Kramer sees Joe DiMaggio and Dinky Donuts. And he's like, I tried to get his attention. Like, what did you call his name? No, I don't want to call his name. I just kind of slapped the table and kind of yelped like, yee, 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 kind of stuff. And we're both laughing about that. And at the same time, we're like, is that somebody we know? Let's try. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and me and Chris are sitting there slapping the table. <laughs> There's like eight of us at this table, and they're looking at us like, "What the hell is wrong with you two? Yeah, and, we're and like, then we just start dying laughing yeah, and about. We're it. looking at them like Seinfeld, and they're like, "Never oh, watched we, it. We don't know what you're talking about." And like, I wanted to fight everybody at that table. Yeah. Because um, Seinfeld is my second favorite sitcom of all time. It's it's a flawless sitcom. But anyway, the idea in Freddy's Revenge, like. I, they, they're like gay subtext. The lead character is very clearly closeted. Like, the opening of the movie has him dancing suggestively with a wooden spoon as a microphone that he also grinds in his crotchular region as he is singing and dancing to this music. Um, he is slowly turning into Freddy Krueger in these dreams. And the idea of there's a monster inside of me trying to get out and I'm trying to hide it. Like, it's very clearly that's what it's trying to be. It's probably the strongest of the sequels. It has some good good kills in it, and it's got some good story to it. Because the idea is that, you know, Freddy's not really dead. He's coming back for revenge on the people that tried to kill him a second time. Then you got Nightmare on Elm Street 3, Dream Warriors. What is your, any kind of experience with that? Don't know. That's the one that <laughs> takes place in, like, 
a sanitarium where all these insomniacs refused to sleep because they oh. all had dreams and nightmares okay. yeah, yeah, about yeah, yeah, Freddy. Yeah. Uh, yeah, okay. You know, this like, is it's, one... it's ringing a few bells, but you, you asked me to tell you about a scene. Yeah, no. Pull the trigger. I'm the, dead. This is like, the one that has the whole, like, the girl who wants to be a TV star, welcome to prime time, bitch, and yeah, he throws yeah. her head into the thing. Yeah. This is the one where he, in a dream sequence, is, like, puppet mastering a guy to walk out of a building using the guy's tendons as the strings. Generally, this is the one that makes people squirm because it looks, ooh, it looks rough at times. Um, this is also the one where Heather Langenkamp's character returns. And tells all of them, like, you know, you all, you have power in your dreams. Just because they're your dreams, they're your dreams. You have this power. So all these different characters have abilities. One of them is super strong. One of them can go invisible. Like, it's 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 cheesy. And this is really where the comedy aspect starts getting dialed up a little bit too high. And I'm not going to lie. That's part of the reason why I never really messed with the franchise Overall, because yeah. I knew very, very quickly it went ridiculous. Kind of like with the um, Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I've <laughs> with seen, the dueling chainsaw. I pulled that clip up on YouTube. I was on the floor laughing. I've seen the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I, I love it. I, I It's very tame by today's standards, but at the time, considering it preceded, you know, Halloween, Friday the 13th, and all everything. that kind of stuff, like, like, a lot of horror movies in the genre owe what they are now to um, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. With that said, it went from zero to a hundred very quickly in that franchise because you went from a dead serious, like it shocked the nation, like people were freaking terrified because they marketed it as being a true story and it kind of was, but it mostly wasn't, and all that kind of stuff. And you like, you know, you watch that movie, and you're like, "Man, wow, this could actually happen." And then part two, and it's one of the most ridiculous, god awful, guilty pleasure movies that I love. Like, there's no three? tomorrow. Uh, part three. Um, That's the one with Matt McConaughey no, and Renee Zellweger. No, is it? Yes. I thought part three. Uh, no, that's the next generation. Is that the next? There, is that, that not part three? No, that's uh, that's part four. That's oh, the next okay. generation. There's another one that's just simply called, um, I think it's called Texas Chainsaw Massacre Three Leatherface or something like that. Mm. But um, I actually enjoy that one pretty good because it is kind of ridiculous, but they went more with like the uh, the seriousness and all of that. But yeah, the one with the Matthew comedy ramp to the, the one with Matthew McConaughey. Ridiculous with the mechanical leg and the yeah. way to control the mechanical leg is what TV remotes. Yeah, like, are you freaking kidding yeah, me? Yeah. And it's just and but this is all to say again that the comedy aspect of a horror movie is not his favorite thing. So the fact it is, that I much prefer very realistic type horror films. That's why I gravitated towards Halloween and I started kind of nah, towards the end once a lot of the supernatural and the cult stuff started getting in. And I'm guessing and, you kind of waffled a little bit with Jason Takes Manhattan. Oh, I hate Jason Takes Manhattan. The only good not, thing... Not even, like, in a guilty pleasure kind of yeah. way. I'm like, it's one of those, like, oh, how the mighty have fallen to me. The I'm only like, good thing that came out of that was they tried to write a scene where Jason would have kicked a dog and Kane Hodder refused to do it. He's like, Jason wouldn't kick a dog. Why would Jason kick a dog? And they couldn't give him any kind of answer as to why Jason would kick a dog. So he didn't. I mean... 
He ain't Patrick Bateman. I don't think he would. I don't think he would either. Dog ain't done him no oh, harm. Man, they're not. It was horny teenagers that no, did it. Yeah, he don't care. Whatever. Yeah, he don't care. Yeah. I'm with Kane on that. He wouldn't kick a dog. Exactly. But even, like, even serial killers have a conscience. <laughs> but like, the ending of the first movie where Nancy is like, you know, you have no power over me. And she refuses to turn around and acknowledge him. And that's how he goes. That is such a beautiful way to do that. Like, that's really a taking power back kind of thing. They undo that by having her get fucking killed by Freddy in this movie. Well, and not not only that, it's kind of a contradiction to sit there and be like, oh, well, you know, you have power in your dreams and all that kind of stuff. If you have power in your dreams, your dreams have power over you. Yeah, like, if you have power in your dreams, like, why haven't you dealt with him yet? Yeah. You know, you know what oh, I mean? I, so, yeah. <laughs> oh, I know, I know, I know. And uh, if it's either... Dream Warriors? No, no, it's Dream Master. We'll get to that. There is a point in Dream Master, which Dream Master kicks off with the 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 girl who survived Freddy at the end of Dream Warriors in her sleep, running into her two friends. They they're they're somehow having a, a collective nightmare together, and they're like, "Are we? Is this like? Is this this again?" Well, how do we tell? The guy that's got Super Strength like, well, let me see. And he takes a part of a broken car and bends it. And he's like, yeah, I got my Super Strength. We must be in a Freddy nightmare. And I'm like, why are you smiling about this? Why are you guys happy to see each other like this? This is the one where the two of them, the other two get away. The guy with the Super Strength screams, Freddy's back. And it's this, Freddy's back, Freddy's back. Like it echoes and they show it from different angles. And then Freddy stabs him with his gloves. And he's, and he's like holding him in an embrace and the guy's like i'll see you in hell and freddie goes tell him freddie sent you you'll get a good seat it's like ah i love you robert england but what are you doing man the course of this movie of dream master if it, if i'm remembering dream master correctly and it's not dream child i'm thinking of uh there is a character who is gaining the dream powers of all these people that are getting killed. She has a brother in this film. If I'm if I'm st- if it is Dream Master, Cal's looking it up to be on the safe side. But if it is Dream Master, she has her brother in this character in this film, and her brother, in a very kung fu moment, puts on a headband and begins fighting Freddy like a martial arts movie. And he starts winning at one point. Until Freddy eventually overcomes it. Is this like it's like Jason losing to the boxing guy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, it's, it's exactly just, what that's like. It's just like, God. Like, I don't, I don't. Uh, and of course, during the course of these the movies. The Dream Master. Uh, it is Dream Master. Okay. So I was right. So over the course of these movies, we come to find out that Freddy is the product of a nurse. Who was, that was not my phone. <laughs> that was not mine. I have gotten zero text messages this entire time. I pulled out my phone to verify that title and thought, I'll just leave it right here just in case I have to verify another title. <laughs> and within 10 seconds not even of 10 setting seconds. it down, my lovely lady that has more than once <laughs> caused me to have to edit slash re-record Freaking episodes, like, mm-hmm. <laughs> boy, I tell you. <laughs> oh man, that's great. Oh, oh, okay. So, 
over the course of these movies, we discover that Freddy is the product of something. A nurse at, at a clinically insane, like a, a building for the criminally insane, was accidentally locked in overnight, over a three-day weekend, with over a hundred psychopaths who spent the entire weekend raping her, and she eventually became pregnant. That's Freddy's origin of his birth, his existence. And it's supposed to explain why he is the way that he is. Uh, I'm not going to lie. Sometimes you don't need an origin. No, you don't. Not especially not like that. You don't need motive. You don't need to find out why is he this way? Why did he do this? Why did he do that? Sometimes, for the sake of a movie, it's okay just to have a freaking psycho that's like, I just genuinely enjoy doing this. Exactly. In no way do I condone people that actually do this. I'm talking about no, 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 no. strictly in the sense of watching a movie and all of that. Like, come on. Yeah. The ideas behind the next two, Dream Child and the fi- Freddy's Dead, The Final Nightmare, were that his mother was a nun who came back to try and help them finally put what she created to rest. Which is in, incredibly insulting for this woman to say, I, I created this and I need to put this away. Like, so you're basically saying that your rape was your fault, is what this characterization is trying to say. Yeah. That has much. never sat well with me. No. This is just like, I, I created this and this and that. Like, no. And no. ultimately, in the course of these two movies, there's there's nothing good to talk about with them. Uh, over the course of these two movies, ultimately, Freddy is defeated. There's a scene where we see Freddy without a shirt on, and all of the people that he has killed, their faces are sticking out of his body Quato and Quaid style from like Total Recall. I'm familiar with and the scene. And it's an awful scene. Which which movie is it where he like his head turns into like a giant snake like worm like thing and he's like inching his way towards That is Dream Warriors. Okay then. That is Dream Warriors. Because that that also kinda That is the same movie where the girl is trying to work out in one of her dreams and her arms start breaking away because she starts turning into a cockroach. It's ridiculous to say, try watching it. No. I've made it 35 years without watching that. I was, I was directing that at the episode. Oh. <laughs> I thought you was directing no, it no, at no. me, and I'm like, no, I'm not. So, I have no desire to watch those movies. At the time of Freddy's Dead, The Final Nightmare, it was believed that the slasher film franchise was in a bit of a downturn. The various Halloween movies. The various... 80s were not kind. The no. 80s and like 80s early, and early 90s, 90s were not kind to the slasher slasher genre. No. Between Nightmare on Elm Street, Friday the 13th, the Hellraiser films, which have always been fantastic. They just unfortunately don't get the same shine on them because the, the Cenobites, they're not Freddy. They're not Jason. They're not Chucky. They're none of these things. And even, and even the Chucky movies, we're not exempt from this. Half of the Chucky franchise you don't need to watch because it's awful. Terrible. But I've seen a good chunk of the Chucky franchise. I've seen almost and, all of it. And yeah, it just and I've watched the the uh TV series, which I have my opinions on. Yeah. But But over the course of this time, between Friday the thirteenth, specifically Friday the thirteenth, Nightmare on Elm Street, Hellraiser, and Halloween, these franchises were experiencing some downturns in popularity. So somebody had an idea. And we didn't touch on this last week, and I wish we had because I would have liked to have seen Ian's reaction. But Freddy and Jason as a crossover 
was not the first crossover for these horror villains that had been discussed. The first crossover that had been discussed was actually Halloween and Hellraiser. Because the idea was that a young Michael Myers would have been playing with the box and would have summoned these creatures and would have been the reason why he was doing what he was doing would be that Pinhead and the others were following him and wanting to experience, like they do, they they love depravity. They love this kind of stuff. Well, this is a human that's wanting to do this. And while that idea initially had a little bit of traction and petered out, one of the other suggestions was to cross over Friday the 13th with a Nightmare on Elm Street. They weren't sure if they were going to do that, so they said, you know what, let's just throw a little Easter egg and tease the idea and get an idea of what the reaction was. At the end of Jason Goes to Hell, after Jason has been defeated by his great-granddaughter or something to that effect, his mask is the only thing left in the dirt. Freddy's gloved hand pops out of the ground, grabs the mask, and drags it down into hell. That's all we got for like seven years. Just testing the waters. Just testing the waters. There was enough of a, you know what? We like this idea. That Freddy versus Jason was greenlit. I will be doing an episode on Freddy versus Jason and after I'll, the first and of the be, year. And I'll be here for it. I will do because one after I the gen- first of the I year. genuinely, not even in like a, it's so bad, it's good. It's a, I genuinely I, enjoy I, I, that I like film. It. I like it a lot. To me, that right there is, on, uh, until we get whatever else we're going to get with these franchises, that's the end of this fran- these franchises for me. And it's a good ending. Yeah. But you can't get to that point without talking about New Nightmare. The idea of New Nightmare, Wes Craven came back for this. Because Wes Craven had not been involved since the first film. Oh, you can tell. His idea, because they asked him, what would you have wanted to do? And he's like, well, one of the things that worked so successfully and so well with the first Nightmare on Elm Street film was the blurring of the lines of whether this is reality or whether this is a nightmare, whether this is a dream. Why don't we bring that kind of aspect into the real world? To that effect, Heather Langenkamp plays a fictional version of herself. The little boy Miko Hughes, who played the creepy-ass child Gabe from Pet Cemetery, and the little boy from Kindergarten Cop, the boys have a penis, girls have a vagina, that little boy plays her son. And the idea is, Freddy was actually something that was a real Sumer- ancient Sumatran type of demonic entity that Wes Craven was visited with the idea at one point. And the idea of the film is they're trying to make a new Freddy Freddy movie, but Freddy has actually come through and is trying to get into their world. This movie, if it had been executed better, could have been very good. It really could have. But the problem with making this movie the way they did and making Freddy essentially a demon and giving him these powers, including like, stretching his head out really wide with his tongue going up and down really freaking fast. You know the scene I'm talking about? Mm-hmm. To try and eat the little boy. Getting his tongue stabbed and his tongue's trying to get away from the knife. They can't get away from the comedy aspect. They just can't do And it. what's sad is that one of the things going into New Nightmare was they're like, let's tone down the comedy. Yeah. Let's make Freddy be more serious and more... And then, and Bring then, him back to what he was that was successful. they have a scene like that. And I'm like... Not what you was aiming for. And like Freddy is constantly referring to Heather's character as Nancy. And 
at the end of this movie, when it comes to the climax, John Saxon has come to visit her, and he believes that he is Nancy's father. And so she has to accept, okay, we have to play this out like it's the movie. So that's how we're going to go about doing this. And then at the end of the film, she's sitting there with her son. Her husband's still fucking dead. Everybody, all these friends of hers are still dead. They decide, hey, there's a script right here. Where did this come from? It's called The New Nightmare by Wes Craven. Mommy, will you read me a bedtime story? Sure. And she opens this up to read to her child. New Nightmare could have been good. It really could have. It could have been the film to breathe new life into the franchise and really get it back on track. But not. it's like at that point, like not even Wes Craven could save the no. train wreck that that franchise had became. Had become. So it's like just... That. So from there, we ended up getting Freddy versus Jason, which was very, very well done. The idea that was talked about at the end of that film would have been that there had been a, a, a potential ending scene that they wanted to film that they decided not to do. That would have been Freddy and Jason continuing their fight in hell. And right as they are about to meet, Pinhead would have rose up between them and said the phrase, Gentlemen, what seems to be the problem? If they could have pulled this off, it would have been a massive thing because Hellraiser is owned by a completely different studio. Like, this was... It just, it just wasn't going to happen. Mm -mm. But the idea was intriguing enough that they did explore it in comics. Yep. Um, like, uh, Freddy versus Jason versus Ash. Or, yes. Or something like that, yeah. And that, honestly, was probably done simply because, again... You look at Sam Raimi and you look at Wes Craven. They've traded stuff so much. They get along so well that Ash Williams is one of the few characters from those kinds of franchises that could conceivably be put in things like this. At this point in time, with how the two franchises were, Ash would have absolutely fit into with their those two franchises. Yeah. And that comic is considered to be the official sequel to Freddy vs. Jason, by the way. Yeah. In case anyone was wondering. From there, all was quiet for a good six years. We got a reboot, remake, of Friday the 13th. Oh. Okay. We, we're we're going to get to there, because it, it, it is part and parcel to it. In this remake, you have a superhumanly strong and superhumanly fast and super intelligent Jason Voorhees. And I'm all about it. I had no problem with the movie. I don't understand. I mean, I guess I can get why some people didn't like it because they like the slow moving kind of thing. Because the, the idea, they're never going to say this because they don't lack, they lack the intelligence to be able to elusive at this point. But the idea of the slow inexorable march of death kind of thing. But this felt more real. This felt better. Which is part of the reason why I gravitated to it so much is because it like, it took Jason who, very early on in his franchise, you know, was more in realism somewhat. Like, you know, like he was a psycho and everything. Yes, in between part one and two, he went from a child to like an adult and all of that kind of stuff. Yeah. And slowly he became known as like the super zombie that he was and everything. And technically at the end of the uh, 2013 um, or two was it 2013? Is that when the film came out? 2009. That's right. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, there's a reason for that, and I'll get to it. Yeah, but whenever by the time it came out, 
like towards the end, they barely touched upon, okay, he is like still the zombie thing. But all throughout the film, I freaking loved it because I'm like, okay, he's not just this slow-moving, hulking guy that just barely is walking towards all of his victims, but somehow can magically appear in front of them and all of that kind of stuff. And this one we got to see, he has a tunnel system. He actually runs, like he has intelligence and all that stuff. Like, like Full disclosure, I, was, I did not see this movie start to finish until last year. Really? I had seen parts of it here and there. I just never had the chance to actually sit and I went to see it because it it opened. Its opening night was on a Friday the 13th. As it should. And I went, me and Rob went and saw it opening night. And we both walked out like it was freaking awesome. We were hoping that that was going to kickstart a new like trilogy or well, something like that. But. It was While it was considered a disappointment, both critically and financially, it did well enough that... They were like, okay, we can move forward with our next planned film. By the way, the remake of Friday the 13th canonically takes place in the same universe as Transformers. Yes, it does. Because the bully character from the first Transformers movie, not only is the actor... The one that was dating Megan Fox uh, not, in, in the first... Not only did the actor, was he in this character, Billy Magnuson, he played the same character. Look up the, the IMDb credits. It is the same actor. It is the same character. Both were done by Michael Bay's production company and all of that kind of stuff. They take place in the same universe. Which just cracks me up to no end to think that Optimus Prime and Jason Voorhees exist going alongside one another. But it was successful enough. I just want to see Jason punch Megatron in the face. Is that too much to ask for? Because we both know he would do it. Absolutely. <laughs> it was successful enough that they decided to move forward with a reboot remake of... A Nightmare on Elm Street. The Abomination. They actively chose and stated, we do not want Robert Englund returning to this film because we feel that he is too old to convincingly portray the menace that we want Freddy to have. They wanted to go with a younger actor. I like Jackie Earl Haley. I think if he had been given the right film, the right star makeup for his burns, and everything else... I think he would have done extremely well as Fred Krueger. The problems I have with this film, apart from his makeup, apart from it just not really resonating, there is a way to go about portraying the potential falsifying sexual assault in a film like this and to go about it in a way that it actually enhances the film. The way they chose to go about it in this film was not so. At one point, you have a character, after talking to his mother, confronting his mother about what they did to Freddy, he says the phrase, Did it ever occur to you that we were lying? That is not how you approach that. Not at all. It would have worked better if they could have had one character who was like, I remember this, was all, this person was always here, but... Maybe he was kind of like implying to them, like, this didn't really happen. You don't, you, this didn't, like, try and get a child to be confused about it. That kind of a thing. Instead, they even have the character, when he gets to see the room where Freddy would have done this to his children, one of the characters is like, oh my God, this is the room, this is this, this is this. This guy goes, oh, I have no memory of this room. Only for, by the end of the film, 
him to realize, no, this is true. You did do this to us. <laughs> did did Ian talk to you about whenever he was watching this movie? No. With his significant other. So they were watching this and they just, you know, we all, you know, when us smart asses get together and we, oh, yeah. we watch movies and we make, uh, we have some dark humor at times and everything. And he said whenever it got to that scene and the guy was looking around the room and he's like, I don't remember this room. <laughs> Ian said he went out loud. He went, yeah, that's right. Because you wouldn't his favorite. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> oh my God, Ian. Yeah, the movie's awful. It oh, did terrible. so much damage. I went that... and saw it in theaters because I was like, okay. It's a reboot. Maybe I can jump back on to this franchise and all of that. It's supposed to be more serious, like more of a legit horror film, not super heavy on the comedy and ridiculousness and all that. Like maybe this could could steer this franchise in a direction that it needs to go. And then it I watched it in so theaters, and much I was like, no. damage to the franchise that even though a potential secondary remake reboot with Robert Englund attached to it was discussed in 2015. The reaction to it was so lukewarm that they were like, let's let this ruminate for a little while. And then the Conjuring series of films had the success they did. And they're like, okay, this is what we're going to be focusing on for now. We are getting another Conjuring film. I have enjoyed the Conjuring films. For the most part, I I have have some issues with The Nun. I like the nun. Uh, I'm aware I'm in the minority with that. Uh, I, That's I, not to say that I don't I, like it. I, I, just, I, I, went, I went into the nun like hearing almost nothing but negative things from a lot of people that uh, I know personally, and then I watched it and I was just like, I I I, I like it. I I don't. <laughs> I like Annabelle. I I really like Annabelle Creation. I thought that was extremely well the, done. The first Annabelle is. Um, Pretty tame, but overall enjoyable to me. Annabelle Creation is probably... Uh, it, it could be either my favorite or my second favorite. The, uh, the other one in that franchise that... Annabelle Comes has, Home. Annabelle Comes Home. The Curse of La Rona was... Okay. I was not. I the Curse of La Llorona is only, it only takes place within the Conjuring universe. I love Linda Cardellini. I've had a, I've been in love with that woman for thirty years almost. But but, but I mean, I, it was watchable. I made it through it, but at the same time, I'm like, I have no reason to ever. Watch it was this probably again. the weakest out of the franchise. Um, I liked the first Conjuring, and I liked Conjuring Two. You're yes. aware of my feelings on Conjuring Three. I'm not a fan. <laughs> And and that's that's not necessarily like okay like that that movie was set up for failure with me because it is a very 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 tired trope for me to where and I know this is weird talking about a franchise of films that deals with like demons and all that kind of stuff but I cannot stand when movies or TV series and things like that the main bad guy of the season or something like that is some sort of like religious cult kind of thing. I'm tired of it. I'm over it. There's a season of Dexter that deals with it. Like least favorite season of Dexter. Um, a TV show that I like, I've talked to you about uh, Banshee. Yeah. Like there's a season that deals with it. Least favorite season. The Conjuring Universe, that one, 
mostly like you know demonic cult and all that kind of stuff. Not a fan. Um, they, before, luckily, luckily, I did not get to the season in Monk that you pretty much uh, yes, told there, me about, and, some... I, and I'm like, no, because uh, in case y'all don't don't know, um, I do not like Monk. Is it Tony Shalhoub you don't like, or is it just no? I like him. It's just okay. the show. I don't. I just don't care for the show. I never have. Well, the thing. One last thing on the Conjuring before we wrap this up is that if they had gone forward with their initially plan- announced idea for the third Conjuring movie about the werewolf, oh, I'd have been all for it. I think that would have done very well. And honestly, a lot of people who saw Annabelle Comes Home said that the werewolf-like creature was the most intriguing thing they did. So that will probably get made at some point. But had they gone with that instead of the devil made me do it, I think it would have been better. So, And with, with all of that said, I'm just going to go ahead and, um, and say that while I do enjoy the Conjuring films for what they are, fiction, the characters of the Warrens that they are based upon. I do not like the Warrens. No, 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 no. I thought, uh, like, genuinely, this this is how I feel about it. I believe they were... Con artists? Frauds. I believe they were con artists, and I believe that they preyed upon people that were having some sort of, of, whether it be supernatural or whatever, they were going through some kind of thing in their life, and these... People preyed on them. I will and so, say. Like, part of me, anytime I watch something related to the Conjuring universe, like, part of me is like, yeah, I like the movies because I do like horror films and all that. But at the same time, I'm like, I hate giving these people, these frauds, more attention than what they've already got. Like, one of the good things, James Wan, who created the Conjuring universe and everything, yeah. even though he's not the he's not the Warrens, he didn't do all one of the things that he has openly stated is that as long as these films are being made, and as long as he has creative attachment over that, they will never do more than what we saw in Conjuring Part 2 about the Amityville horror. He's like, Amityville has been done to death. It has been examined. It has been looked at. It has been legally examined. He's like, there are other aspects of horror we can move on to. You can touch upon Amityville existing and having been part of the Warrens thing without having to devote a whole movie to it. He will never do it. The next things we're getting are like the Crooked Man, the Nun 2, and then eventually the Conjuring 4. So, yeah. But again, again, this is all the reason why anything related to Nightmare on Elm Street has been currently stalled. It is not permanently stalled. They do intend on eventually doing it. However, there's a part of me that feels like if they don't do it before Robert Englund passes away, they're not going to do it at all. I don't know. Because, uh, unfortunately, it is as... as cheesy and horrible as they are they do have a fan base and just like we kind of talked about with um halloween ends where they were basically like oh this is it for the franchise we're done and all that kind of stuff we're wrapping it all up and everything like we have no they're literally calling this the end of the franchise and i said it with halloween i'll say it with nightmare on elm street and any other franchise that's out there they're going to continue. Yeah, they make at too much some, money. at some point in time because they even do, if they bomb, they make too much. They money. do have a fan base. They will make money, even if it's not a whole lot. Even if you just, it may not make a whole lot in its box office run, but merchandise that comes out with it. There's a whole slew of people that would be like, "Oh yeah, I'm going to buy new Freddy 
hats or sweaters officially licensed. It's, mm. it's a freaking sweater. But all you have to do is say, this is the officially licensed Freddy Krueger sweater. Yeah. And they're going to sell like hotcakes. So. I mean, that's just all it is to it. Yeah. And on that note, this was our episode on A Nightmare on Elm Street. I had fun with this. I had fun researching this. This one took me a little while longer to research because this episode should have dropped three days ago. And unfortunately, it did not. It will be dropping tomorrow morning. That's when I'm going to have it come out. Uh, tomorrow being Thursday the 20th. The next episode will be on Scream. And that is planned to come out on Sunday on, as scheduled. Uh, the final episode for Spooky Month this month this year will be on the Phantasm series. And I'm going to try and time that one to release the morning of Halloween. We'll see if I'll be able to get that done because between the notes and the fact that Ian wants to have a watch party with the Phantasm movies, there's going to be some moving around of pieces that have to happen. Because I've never seen any of the Phantasm movies. So the moment he found that out, he's like, I own them. We'll watch them. And I'm like, okay. You know, most of them are on Hulu. I mean, I'm I'm good with at least just watching the first one. Yeah, that's what so, I mean. So <laughs> again, this was Nightmare on Elm Street. Next up, we're going to be doing Scream. Are you going to join me for that one? Yeah. Okay. Far, I mean, as far as I know. So I've next seen, time, I've seen the first three. You don't need to see anything past four. I have no desire to see anything. Four is all right, but it's too much of a... It's a parody of itself at that point. Yeah. And I have no desire to see the TV series. The fifth one, less said the better, because I, I looked up the particular twist that you saw. That did, uh. So, here and over there. This was Nightmare on Elm Street. Next week is Scream. Thank you guys for listening so much. I am Kid Kong. He is Cal the Kaiju Guy. I will see you at the movies.